0: Hey, Don. Hello, Zach. This week, New York Times had sort of multiple stories about aging and life expectancy and getting older in America. It looks like people are now starting to talk about the idea of what are the limits of the human body? How old can we live to? Here's the best paragraph I read. As the global population approaches 8 billion and science discovers increasingly promising ways to slow or reverse aging in the lab. The question of human longevity's potential limits is more urgent than ever. When their work is examined closely, it's clear that longevity scientists hold a wide range of nuanced perspectives on the future of humanity. Historically, however, and somewhat flippantly, according to many researchers, their outlooks have been divided into two broad camps, which some journalists and researchers call the pessimists and the optimists. Those in the first group view lifespan as a candle wick that can burn for only so long, They generally think that we are rapidly approaching or have already reached a ceiling on lifespan and that we will not witness anyone getting older anytime soon. In contrast, the optimists see lifespan as a supremely, even more infinitely elastic band. They anticipate considerable gains in life expectancy around the world, increasing numbers of extraordinarily long-lived people, and eventually super centenarians who push the record to ages 125. 150, 200, and beyond. Though unresolved, the long-running debate has already inspired a much deeper understanding of what defines and constrains lifespan and of the interventions that may one day significantly extend it. And Don, this article, along with a couple other ones we read, they talk about some of the science behind how do you get a human body to live longer. They also sort of ponder the meaning behind living this long. Is it right for the earth? Or should humans kind of just die off at a natural rate at some point What did you think about all the articles?
1: It's fascinating in that many people in the past always thought, well, this is what you get. You get as long as your parents got, or you get this thing and now you're going to die. It just happens. And that's, there was so much more death at early ages. A lot of the death and lifespan debate was interesting in that it wasn't necessarily about living super long, but not dying super young, which brings the average lifespan way, way up. But in general, it seems like now we have a solution to almost every problem. And the big news is when there's no solution to this thing that you now have. As in the past, it would have been, well, you just have this thing and now that's it for you. I think that's the biggest idea is how we've changed our perspective on health
0: issues. Growing up, I always kind of just thought every human got 100 years on this planet. I was obviously very wrong as our current life expectancy, I think, in America is around 78 is sort of what I saw yesterday. But I always just kind of thought people get about 100 years on this planet. And therefore, what you do with your 100 years or so is what you do with them, right? And life is scarce. Life is precious. The idea that you could extend it to maybe 150, that is a lot of time on this earth extra. But I'm not sure if it's the quality years you want. Well, you make a big difference
1: in terms of maximum lifespan. There's a big difference between thinking about that and thinking about overall longevity increases, because overall longevity increases, based on the article, was saying is driven largely by fewer childhood deaths. And if, every, if there's nobody die, not many people dying at one, two, three, then you have much longer average lifespans, which is what the second article we read, also in the Times Magazine health issue, was about, is in general, people are just living longer because there's fewer early deaths. But then this other issue that you bring up is living extra long. That one is just hard for me to fathom because there's people that live a long, long time And the last few years are misery and uncomfortable unpleasantness. Whereas there's people that live a long time and are very, very active. And it seems to be, if I'm not the latter, I don't really want to be the former.
0: The article starts out talking about this lady who lived in France, who maybe got to 122 in terms of age. And she just sort of was this modern miracle of humanity that just kind of kept on living people were just trying to figure out, you know, what is it about her body or her genes or genetics that just kind of let her keep going. Now, it sounded like, though, the last 20 to 30 years of life, while she was still definitely somewhat respondent and able to talk and and, and gross, people, you know, it sounded like she probably couldn't see very well, couldn't hear very well, obviously not moving a ton. You know, it definitely sort of raises the question of like, do you want to be this high? And you're right, there's this debate about okay, the average life expectancy, which to me seems like just trying to get the quality years of life higher for people on this earth. But then you have this extreme life living in terms of how how old you can get. Science now is starting to wonder, though, that basically, you have a high risk of death until maybe about up to age 80. And if you don't die by 80, then all of a sudden, there's like this like death plateau, they were talking about how Sort of getting to the next year, you maybe get like a 50% chance of getting there. And it's not that you're not still going to die at some point. It's just that like, it seems like you made it past a lot of the things that could shut you down.
1: Yeah. If you've not had a heart attack in your sixties or seventies or a stroke or some sort of cancer fairly early on in life, then you seem to just plateau and wait for your body to wear out. And based on the article, yes, this woman's eyes and ears wore out earlier than others. She was most of the part in bed. I mean, it doesn't sound entirely pleasant. I'm sure she's there reminiscing and talking, but talking to people that were born 50 years after her because she's not nobody's around. And so, yeah, this long, long life, I'm not sure I see the merit in it. I'm more interested in a life where people can be active. And the article really didn't dive into that. The miracle of modern medicine is hip and hip replacements and knee replacements where people would have been just sitting in their 60s, 70s, 80s. Now they can be active and doing things. I have relatives that are in their 80s that are extremely active only due to hip and knee replacements. When I saw my grandfather when I was a little boy, those weren't options. And he was, for the most part, chair-bound or wheelchair-bound. He was not moving around a whole lot. Perhaps if he had been hip and knee replacements, he could be active. And being physically active helps the mental acuity. And that's the thing that the article didn't really tackle. It got all tied up in this living extra, extra long. And I'm just not sold that that's something I want to do.
0: Well, I think living extra, extra long, when you throw out years, like 150 years or 200 years, like that's a sexy headline, right? Like people sort of want to know what it's like. I mean, I would love to see somebody run under nine seconds in the hundred meter dash. I'd love to see a human on Mars. I would love to see the remaining members of Pink Floyd all get together and have a reunion tour. I don't know if I want to see what a 150 year old person looks like. Now, it's possible that maybe they would look super young and they would look fine, I guess, like one of those Hollywood actors who just keeps getting more and more plastic surgery or something like that. But I mean, do you really want to see what it looks like to be 150?
1: I guarantee the person that runs 100 meters in 9 seconds will not be the person that lives to 150. The fat, the <laughs> most unobtainable record in track and field in my mind is Florence Griffith Joyner ran 10.49 for 100 meters under suspicious circumstances and meaning like probably lots of steroids and so forth and also passed away in her 50s in a play by a heart attack. This is one of the most fit person people in the world. I mean there's limits on both sides. You can't wear out one side and hope that the other is going to be there.
0: You know, I, I don't know. I just I thought it was interesting. They talked about, okay, so how do you get there? How do you get to 150 years old? There's sort of three kind of things I took away from these articles. And the first one was the idea of gene therapy and the idea of there's various chemicals or proteins that you can put into people's bodies that basically regenerate the cells so that they return to a more younger state. Uh, The cells are holding up pretty well. And therefore, like they've been shooting them into mice eyes right now, and apparently taking old mice and, and, and get you know, that are now have really young and good looking vision. And so there's a lot of theory that we could be doing that for humans once we get the right, you know, set of cocktails, right. And that's just a matter of grinding out the science long enough to kind of figure that out. Another idea is Basically, they've taken mice and they've conjoined them. They've literally like sewed their bodies together. They've taken an old mice and a young mouse and let their blood just kind of run between the two. And they found that the old mouse started to become younger with the younger mouse's blood and the younger mouse sadly got a little bit older. The idea is like, are there various blood therapies that we could do where you and I, I guess, could harvest the blood of an eight-year-old if we wanted to feel better or something like that? And then the other idea is just a low caloric diet, there seems to be a lot of correlation to eating less your body from an evolutionary standpoint, during times where humans didn't have a lot of food around your body would kind of go into kind of a, um, I guess, sort of a state of uh, kind of semi shutdown, where it didn't need a lot of calories to keep moving and living. And the idea is if you eat low calories, you almost have your body just lasting longer. Those are kind of the three things I took away. Uh, What did you think about these ideas?
1: They're wild. The blood thing is crazy. And the talk of taking blood transfusions to become young. We watched a show called The Hundred and they were taking blood from these grounders to give to these hiding away people that survived the nuclear uh, holocaust. And they it, it was just crazy. And that, that's all the visions that can come in my head. That's too far fetched for me to gather. No, so is a, a tying somebody else's body to another person's body in order to make them live longer like the mouse thing. The uh, study on the reduced calories, that's been around for a long time. I remember reading about that in college when I took psychology classes. And that is interesting in that it's just that you go through, f- you, the more calories you burn, the more breakdown there is of your system, to lack of scientific words. It's interesting. They talked about going to a conference of people that want to live forever, and they're all ultimately thin, incredibly thin. And they're living a long time and measuring their food. And I'm not sure that's a life I want to lead earlier. Ultimately, other than the not eating thing, which seems undesirable and far-fetched for most people, these other two seem to be pipe dreams. The best thing we can do to live a long time is to be healthy, to eat the right things, not necessarily nothing, but eat the right things, to exercise, to drink lots of water, And I was thinking a lot about this as you and I are reading the Churchill book at the very end of World War II, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Winston Churchill are both breaking down physically with high blood pressure, with too much alcohol, with too much stress and not enough sleep. And all these things are just coming for them. Ultimately, there's nothing that they can do at that point it's done. And I just am fascinated with this idea of regret. And I don't know if people have it. People that are at the very end and say like, Wow, I really should have exercised all that time or I really should have drank more water or done this different or really gotten that blood pressure under control or the sugar under control as diabetes is a big problem in America. I don't know that we're willing to make the tough decisions or even if we have regret, if we find ourselves in that situation, I'm not sure.
0: No, and you make a really good point of what if Roosevelt and Churchill just say, you know what, guys, I'm not going to help with this war, I'm not going to get in politics, I'm not going to enter public life, I'm just going to kind of sit in my bunker and just sort of barely maintain an existence so that I can live for a really long time. And then you could, of course, get into this whole debate of what's a life worth living, right? And those are obviously two people that are going to, you know, be historically with us forever in books and in movies and stuff like that because of what they accomplished and it doesn't really seem like either guy was sort of living for 150 years, right? We talked about with Churchill; he was jumping into every battle he could because, hey, if I don't die, I'm gonna, I'm gonna rise. I'm gonna have more uh, to my name and stuff like that. And I, I agree with you. I, I don't know why people would want to sit here thinking about the last 50 years of your life. Not that there isn't somebody who said, "For I want to live as long as I can," but I think, as you said a little bit earlier. I want to live as long as I can with a functioning body that's still moving about where I can still get on. In fact, a lot of this researcher research is being funded by your internet billionaires out on the West Coast. There was a big New Yorker article a couple of years ago about how they seem the most obsessed with figuring out longevity. And these are, of course, also the same people that have money for eternity, right? It's almost like the one thing they can't beat, the one thing they can't out-computer program right now is death. And it probably bothers a lot of them that they made all this money and they're not going to have time to spend it and then influence it, right? Uh, all of a sudden, we, we see your friends, the Koch brothers, with their big uh, political action committee, right? Trying to change U.S. policy here, even though they're in their 80s at this point. And while you could say, well, they're still an American, are they, are they changing it for what the majority of the young are actually wanting? Or are they just influencing it the most because they have the most money?
1: It's all fundamentally mispriced. So when people are very old and psychologists go back and talk to them and say, when were you happiest in your life? What was it people are happiest at? It's when they're working. It's when they're generative. It's when they have small, middle-aged kids that are growing up. And that's where you and I are. We're busy people with little kids, or my kids aren't so little anymore, but we're working two jobs. We're getting things done. We're very active. We don't have a lot of time for reflection. But this is what we're going to look back on and say, this was the best time based on what other research has said. So the idea of focusing on how long you're going to live, I think is just the wrong perspective. And it's wrong for uh, Sergey Brin and the other Google founders and so forth that are all for this super long life experiment, really focus on today as what happens then won't be the happiest time. And that's also true of many other people we know who are focused on retirement. In retirement, it'll be so good. Like, really? Will it be so good? Well, this is the time that you'll be caught. When you're retired, you'll be looking back at what your kids did or what you did. And it's not going to feel, you're not going to feel as good or be able to do as many things. So I think it's just a fundamentally wrong idea to focus on the long run.
0: There was a little bit of this and you're right. I would have loved to have seen some more thought about some of the implications of, let's say we are all getting way into our hundreds. How does that impact today? One, maybe we value our time on the planet a little bit less because we're just like, well, I'm going to get an extra 20 or 30 years, but you do have to ask questions like, well, what does that do with things like overpopulation, right? Do we have enough resources for everybody? If there's a log jam at the top um, of people going, what does it do to Like the science versus faith argument. Do you see a real change in religious beliefs? Maybe an increase or a decrease. What about financially? It's expensive to take care of the elderly. And I bet you, if you're making it into your 130s and 140s and 150s, you gotta be super expensive on the healthcare system. And what if you can't afford it? How are we paying for that? Those are some of the questions that I was sort of wondering about. Oh yeah, and that's where I wanted to go next was the focus
1: on the money let's just for a moment say, let's take these super wealthy Google founders or whatever that want to live to 200 and compare them with the newly single Bill Gates. The Gates Foundation is all about bringing up lifespan of very, very poor people. By the way, this whole discussion is not moot for very, very poor people. Even today, 0.3% of the COVID vaccines have gone to developing nations where almost all of the people are. It's just going to these wealthy nations where we are lucky to reside. And the Gates Foundation's pouring money into curing uh, nasty worms that pop out of your skin, guinea worm. They're going for elimination of polio, elimination of other diseases, dealing with cholera. This is where the Gates money's going, is to try and bring up the lifespan of these poorest people. It's just so disparate from what the... Google founders money, which is going for not all of it, but partially going to, let's try to live to 150.
0: It just seems so selfish and it bothers me. It does seem a little bit selfish, but is it also a natural thing? I mean, once your economy sort of industrializes, you then slowly shift to a service-based economy, right? And therefore it almost kind of makes sense that, well, we've got a pretty solid life expectancy here in America. We've got a lot of the basic necessities taken care of. Therefore, why wouldn't we turn our attention to how can we, how can we last forever? I mean, I guess I too thought about the kind of the selfishness among the rich, because they'll be the only ones who can kind of afford this thing. It doesn't seem like it's going to be an equal access opportunity for a lot of people is again, I mean, the original idea of social security was that you were going to be able to try to provide some extra money to people as they kind of live out their final years on this planet, right? One of the issues with social security now is that people are living longer. And therefore, as a government, we're struggling to maybe fund those people as they get older and older. What do you do now if you, if you were to look at 20 and 30 years of people that are getting older? Or do you just now say, I'm sorry, you can't afford all of the treatments that we do have available to extend life? Or as we've talked about with like Hippocratic Oaths and stuff like that, do no harm. Don't you have to offer everybody these sorts of treatments to extend life?
1: Yeah, I mean, you can't afford to. Certainly, these are new developable ideas that in will ultimately affect very, very, very few people. Russ Stowers, our good friend, gave me a, another short story other than the one we've used before about, and I can't remember the name of the author, but... There, this family, the oldest, the grandfather lives forever and has all the money and everybody else is just crowded around waiting for this 200 year old man to die because then they could inherit things and there wasn't enough resource in this earth for the people that remained. I mean, I don't know where this goes. If we have the ultra wealthy hanging around us forever, isn't the, shouldn't the role model be the Gates model to give away your money and move on or the Rockefeller or Carnegie money to hang out and go somewhere, even the Ford money goes to the Ford Foundation. Shouldn't we move on? We need to have new people and new ideas. I don't know if we need these wealthy people hanging around forever,
0: forever, ever, forever, ever, forever, ever. <laughs> well, no, and you bring up a great point about society always seems to have a tension between the generations, right? You and I have often joked or wondered aloud if the baby boomer generation is the most selfish generation that's ever lived. And at the same time, now we've got millennials and and Gen Z, I think all pushing up against us from down below and Collectively, there's usually um, values that each generation kind of holds, and they're probably different than the other generations. And while you have this tension, and it's probably a healthy g- tension in terms of generating public policy that's tries to be fair to everyone, ultimately, one generation is going to lose because they're going to die and they're going to leave. And then the, the <laughs> tension just moves. Well, I'm sorry, that, that's that's true, isn't it? <laughs> Yes, yes, and therefore the tension just moves down to the next set. But you, you brought up Churchill and, and FDR. What if those two guys, right, lionized for their roles in World War II and in the early part of the the first half of the 1900s? What if they were still alive right now? What if their name was being invoked all the time for? Well, that's not what Churchill would do right now if we, you know, with COVID or something like that. And it's like because they're not dead, we have to now sort of continue to appease them, even though their mindset might still be from like the 1940s. There was a good point brought up in one of the articles where they said, maybe we don't have the sort of progress that we've had on civil rights and on access to free and equal opportunities in society if we don't have a lot of people from the early 1900s that have just died off. And therefore, there's been a major value shift. And while we can still have a lot of conversation of things aren't perfect, but there's at least been some incremental progress. Maybe that doesn't happen though, if we don't get rid of those people. Well, you and I think it's progress. Other people might
1: say the good ones are gone and they're the ones that were keeping us on an even track. Yeah, I that's an interesting idea. the the change is needed. That said, you don't really want to be the change that's leaving, but they just kind of <laughs> that's do. True. It's not it, like it's not like they're surrendering on purpose. They're just, you know, crawling into the grave shaking their fist at these young people that don't want to work and uh want to live in apartments with somebody else mowing the lawn.
0: And you make a really good point. You know, it happens gradually, right? I mean, it's like every week there's another notable person who passes on and usually there's kind of some obituaries that are written about them and and then we kind of keep moving on as a society. It's a gradual thing, of course, but I do wonder about like Imagine if like your George Washington's or Abraham Lincoln's like lionized American heroes at this point are still like around. Like it would just kind of be weird if we had to be deferential to all of these great people all the time, right? Wouldn't there be like a log jam of it's nobody else's time to, to kind of step up? Or what if you had a Joseph Stalin who got to live for another 50 years or something like that? How does the world kind of play out? And I realize these are kind of you know fantastical questions but it does just kind of give you the idea, the reminder that there's just sort of life cycles and every era has new notable people that are help pushing the edges of everything.
1: Or it's happening right now. We have the oldest president ever, who is a, who's, what is he, 80 years old? Yeah. We have our speaker of the house is 80 years old. We have the, the Senate, Mitch McConnell is like 80 years old. They're all really, really old. And their lack of leadership coming up, people seem to blame the young people. Maybe it's because the old people are just holding on to this metal, the uh, brass ring, and they're not giving it up. And therefore, it's hard for the young people to come up and be leaders. And in a sense, we already have. And we don't have any special secret anti-aging. I don't think Nancy Pelosi is injecting the blood of eight-year-olds. She's just an active woman who exercises and drinks lots of water and is vibrant still and one could be said the same for Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden. I mean, it's happening already. It's just a greater degree. I think you're a little far-fetched there reaching for Lincoln and Washington,
0: but even so it, it's it is in a sense happening. I could be far-fetched, you're right, but imagine if Lincoln and Washington were around for like World War 1 or the Civil War or World War 2 and imagine you know that their opinion probably, I would, I would assume, maybe counts at the table or something like that. But you are right. And I think you make a really good point about, you're right, our current major leaders are, are pretty old. There is something to be said for being old, right? There's a, there is technically supposed to be wisdom there. There's supposed to be an understanding of how the quote unquote game works. And as you know, too, usually people are always excited or, or want to push the old people off the stage. But then you realize that they were actually fairly unifying forces for a lot of different factions. And now all of a sudden, what's the new world look like?
1: Well, they also grew up in a different time where they're interacting with different people. Many of them served in the military and were interacting with all sorts of people from all different places. And so, yeah, they do have experience. But in a sense, in another sense, they are still around. As we read the Churchill book, he's quoting Napoleon all the time and the idea of napoleon what napoleon would think people endure through their writing through their thoughts or at least they have endured and people have studied them and they make reference to them and so yes they are still around it's just i don't know if they need to be around in person maybe if they're around in person that's detrimental to their legacy i found out a lot of things about gandhi and the churchill biography if he's still around 30 years later Maybe he's saying some things that are ultra-socialist communists. He's not remembered for his anti-violence speaking. I mean, maybe they do great disservice to their legacy.
0: That's a really good point. There is something to be said about leaving and then letting sort of history control your narrative, especially if you've got some high points on there, and, and be remembered for that. Because you're right, you sometimes can stay on the stage too long And then people kind of remember, you know, maybe other things that maybe you started promoting or or, um, being an activist for that that didn't turn out to be so good.
1: Yeah, I mean, do you think JFK and his constant womanizing would look good now and his use of prescription drugs tremendously wouldn't Bill Cosby have been better off if he had passed away 20 years ago, and we didn't know all the awful things he did he would be lionized to history. And now he's just a villain. Rightfully so. He is a terrible person.
0: No, and you're right. There was a book I read a long time ago by Chuck Klausterman, where he sort of took this road trip across America, visiting the sites of dead music stars. And it was sort of a strange like premise, but he basically just wanted to talk about the idea that did these music stars sort of die at the most perfect moment? And, and his best example was like Kurt Cobain of Nirvana from the early '90s, where he releases I think only like one to maybe three albums, but he's like this megastar dies at the height of his popularity, and it's kind of hard to imagine what would that guy be like today if he was still living. But the idea that he died when he did, he will always be this like mythical figure again. And he talks about like Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and how they never had a downside to their career, if you know what I'm saying.
1: Well, and the counterpoint to that is Paul McCartney, who the Beatles broke up in their, when all the Beatles were in their early 20s. And Paul's just gone on to write good music and be a good performer and be basically adored by everyone in the world and be a nice, kind man for all, all known experiences. So that's the counterpoint. But I don't know how many people gracefully go off like that. Paul seemed to be more well-adjusted than some of the other people just mentioned.
0: And you're correct. Although we could definitely have a debate about what kind of music Paul McCartney has been making over the last 30 or 40 years. And some people would probably argue it's very good, but I would just still say, does Paul McCartney get to have the microphone in his face because of what he's done the last 30 or 40 years, or because he was a Beatle? you know, there's something to be said for the idea that he'll be able to just ride that off until his final days is that he was a Beatle and he definitely left an uh, an imprint in the world. But that's what I'm just kind of saying about other people is that when you've accomplished something great, maybe you just get to be at the table, but maybe it's too long. Go out on a high note, like uh, George Costanza and
1: Seinfeld, just tell a good joke, then walk off the stage and that's where you go.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're right. It's, it's, never easy to sort of have a high note. And it's always, of course, easy to sit here and judge others work. But I just think when you start talking about living like this, and into these extreme ages, it brings up a lot of interesting points that that, that should be considered, you know, some of the other things the article brought up was that, look, if, if you could think, okay, I've got 150 years on this earth, does that mean that you could have multiple careers, does that mean you could have multiple families and move in and out of, of, of life like that, right? More time to, to try lots of different hobbies that maybe you never would have thought of. And those are just kind of things that I guess you don't think about.
1: Yeah, I guess that's true. I You're still burdened with one body. You know, I broke my ankle really badly and that ankle's pretty good, but it's not great. And that's the only one I have. And I'm going to die with it. And it's limited a little bit of the things I can do. And it's just the permanence of things are real. It's not like you get to start all over and everything's new again. That's part of what was neat about being young or even still today, having your first child and knowing what that's like and holding them and realizing the changes in your life and all the new things. I don't think that happens again. People probably appreciate it differently if they have a second family. I don't know. I'm pretty sure I'm all done. I'm pretty sure this is my family and I'm not having other kids but I don't know what that next experience is. I can't believe that it's as novel as the first.
0: I would agree. And I, and I think you're right. Like there's gotta be a compounding of all of your various ailments and injuries. And that's kind of why I don't know if I really want to see what life is like from 100 to 150. Now, once again, there are some people, though, that are in this article, you know, betting that the first person who's going to make it to 150 is already alive among us. They talked about this bet that two guys had. One guy doesn't think that there is that person, somebody else thinks they did. And they both put $150 into like a trust fund that if the first person gets to 150, they will get this money that's going to be compounding for the next 150 years or something like that. And then if they don't make it, then they're just their descendants or whatever will get this money. But I thought that was sort of interesting that there are people out there betting on it. And I wondered that even if we can extend life, maybe we'll also have the right treatments to make life feel pretty good. Maybe physically you'll hold up to that age.
1: Well, and I would argue that we kind of already know what this is. I mean, genetic elements aside and hoping not for catastrophic illness aside, we know what this method is. Um, There was a guy who was named Red Simmons, who was the first women's track and field coach in University of Michigan. And he raced Jesse Owens when he was in college. (laughs) And he was hanging around Michigan track and field through the 90s into the 2000s. He died in 2012 at 102, but he'd be out there running, doing pull-ups at like 98, 99 years old, and he was just an active guy who was always moving and doing things, and that's kind of the recipe, and you can't control your genetics entirely, but you can do these things, and that's the thing that people don't really think about. I mean, certainly, I was not making the best choices for my long-run health when I was in my early 20s. But now I realize what those things are and I'm willing to make those choices. And it doesn't seem that people want to do that. It's that people want to throw the long bomb, the hope for the blood transfusion, the hook me up to some little kid so I can survive longer by getting the blood without having to actually make the tough, hard decisions. That's what we want. And it's just this whole idea of like the pill that fixes everything. That seems to be the focus of the article. And that's what irritated me because I don't know if Churchill thought hey, drinking constantly all day, sleeping three hours a night, and eating terrible food is probably not good for me, so I should make better decisions. Well, that may not have been the thought in the 20s and 30s and 40s, but I'm sitting there looking like, yeah, Churchill could have been around a lot longer. Joe Biden wouldn't be president now if he lived like Churchill.
0: And you make up a really good point. Are we sure that this is a goal that many Americans really share is to get to be 150. I mean, you've talked about it, but like obesity, smoking, those are two major causes of death in our society that are fairly preventable. And people that are probably, you know, eating too much sugar or smoking cigarettes probably are just enjoying today, right? The piece of cake tastes good now, the cigarette gives you a quick fix. Therefore, maybe this is just an issue for again, internet billionaires, but I could also see though, people at the, at the end saying, you know, I think I'd like some of that too, but can we really give it to them?
1: No. And that's the thing that I've I'm stuck. is I keep thinking about is where do, where are you at the end? Is it regret? Is it like, I'm going to make some changes because it doesn't seem like a lot of people make major health changes in their fifties and sixties. And so I'm trying to do that. Now you mentioned sugar and carbs, and that seemed like something that was great and more fuel for the fire, but now I'm realizing that's probably not good, and I need to try to avoid it, and it's not easy, but I think about it all the time because I'm trying to make the best choices so I can be in a good situation. I'm a tall man. We don't live long. I need to try and do everything I can to make it, but it's something to think about as opposed to people that are just not at all interested in it, and I just feel like this is ignoring the idea that there are basic things we can do as humans to live to be 100, and stop thinking about 150 because it's a pipe dream or it's a dream that's only going to be affordable by the billionaires.
0: I didn't know that tall people had less uh, life expectancy.
1: Yes, tall people don't live as long as short people and neither do lefties,
0: my friend. Uh-oh, that's, that's bad for me. You and I are like purebred dogs, I guess, huh?
1: Yeah, thank goodness you're not real tall. You're a lefty, but you're tall-ish. And so this could be bad for you. You're above average.
0: <laughs> I do have great blood pressure though. You you do. You have great blood pressure, unlike I. Well, I want to go back to something you were talking about a little bit earlier ago, which was kind of that second article where they talked about maybe in some ways we've already solved this issue. And that, of course, is bringing up life expectancy. Stop talking about how old we can make one person as a science experiment and start focusing on what we've already accomplished. And so I just wanted to read this paragraph from the article because I think it kind of in some ways already pats humanity on the back for what we've been able to do i was just looking up on a chart on statistica this weekend but like in the 1860s the human life expectancy in america was like 40 by 1900s it was 50 1950s we got to the 60s by the 2000s we got to 75 right now we're at about 78 you know how do we celebrate that is this science is this us taking a small child and, and you know belting them to our waist so that we can have their blood or some gene therapy. And instead, here's the best paragraph where it says, another reason we have a hard time recognizing this kind of progress is that it tends to be measured not in events, but in non-events. The smallpox infection that didn't kill you at age two, the accidental scrape that didn't give you a lethal bacteria infection, the drinking water that didn't poison you with cholera. In a sense, human beings have been increasingly protected by an invisible shield, one that has been built piece by piece over the last few centuries, keeping us even safer and further from death. It protects us through countless interventions, big and small, the chlorine in your drinking water, the ring vaccinations that rid the world of smallpox, the data centers mapping out new outbreaks all around the planet. And Don, part of me is just like, why can't that just be enough? Celebrate where we've been And hey, look at that. You now got 35 pretty good extra years from the 1860s in a way. And those are years where your body's still functioning. You're still moving. You can work. You can enjoy your family. Shouldn't that be enough?
1: Well, that's what we should celebrate. And that's what I thought was the better article here was the idea that we've brought up the lifespan for the vast majority of population. Polio's almost gone. COVID really puts the step back of the eradication, but it was down to like 30 something cases the year before COVID hit. So it's tremendous, the growth we've gotten. We don't look around seeing little kids that are likely to are paralyzed for life, which happened commonly in America in the 1940s and 50s. So yeah, this is, we've made tremendous leaps. The developing nation worlds have much longer lifespan through simple and common techniques like vaccinations and how to treat cholera and let people just get through it and survive. I mean, that's what we should really be celebrating. In addition, it's not just the longer lifespan, but it's the better lifespan. People are healthier. Like I said earlier, the hips and the knees and so forth like that, allowing people to be active and doing things and being, if your body's active, your mind is probably active too. Just look at your favorite football player, Tom Brady, who's 43 years old, winning Super Bowls and tossing trophies from boat to boat.
0: He's an American hero. He's our longevity. Just don't eat any tomatoes. Maybe that's it. Just uh, stay away from ketchup and uh, red sauces. The article said that the Spanish flu of 1918, 1990, kind of the last major, 1919, sorry, the last major pandemic, life expectancy dropped from 54 to 47. What was interesting about that particular disease was that it was impacting young people. Young people were the ones that were getting the most sick and dying at the highest rates. So obviously it's not a total curve that goes straight up, but you do think about COVID and obviously lots of people have passed away. Lots of people have gotten sick, but it does kind of point out about how we've been able to so quickly reverse our position with it right we were able to quickly map this thing out we started talking about things like testing and and within a year and i still think it's something that goes underappreciated is that vaccines were developed and have begun to be distributed across the world that's a major milestone the article also just talked about the miracle of like pasteurized milk and how in some areas of america like the death rate just sort of dropped by like 14 percent as people weren't getting poisoned by milk that's a huge deal Although it didn't
1: stop the uh, carnation uh, infant formula from being distributed in developing world forever and ever, and uh, people mixing it with bad water and killing their children that way. I mean, yes, there are simple things that can have been developed, and that was massive
0: science when it happened to have pasteurized milk, but that saved millions of people. Yeah, penicillin that soldiers were bringing with them on the battlefield. They always talk about how that saved tons of people from just getting infections, which was always a maybe a bigger leading cause of death sometimes. I, I look at this article though, in terms of about 10 or 15 years ago, I remember reading something about the gas mileage and how America of course was trying to get more gallons, more miles per gallon, sorry. The idea was like, look, yes, we can make these little cars that go 50 miles a gallon, like a Prius or something like that, and, and pat ourselves in the back and celebrate it but really the battle is to get the car that was going 10 miles a gallon to go 12 to 15, getting the 15 miles a gallon car to go to 20 and bringing up the bottom that you're gonna really solve the problem. And to me, I think about life expectancy and look at that, we've brought up the bottom and shouldn't we be able to celebrate that? Because this is something that everybody can benefit from, not just your Silicon billionaires.
1: And I thought about you today because of your love of great of, uh, ticker tape parades. And as we have falling requirements for masks from the CDC, and it looks like this uh, pandemic is starting to recede, should we have a ticker tape parade? And then I realized, yes. like, no, absolutely yes. not, because it's declaring victory. But the battle has just begun in the developing world. And it will come back unless we continue to get vaccines and get our children vaccinated. And it is a continuing battle. You never get to celebrate because there's no finish line.
0: I do remember when George Bush went on that aircraft carrier and he had that banner, right? Uh, Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. And everybody gave him a hard time for that as obviously we stayed in Iraq and Afghanistan for many, many, more years. And you're right at any moment, you can still find a lot of problems, but you can also find a lot of success. You say that, and it's like, well, I think we should, you know, sell like have a quasi ticker tape parade, or how about a parade, but no ticker tape? Um, <laughs> and at least take a moment to acknowledge where our nation has been in, in just a little over a year, because I do think that's a major turning point. I mean, I'm amazed at how many people that I see are kind of optimistic right now about the next couple of months in America. And I feel like it's okay to be optimistic sometimes, right?
1: We're too divided. I was watching uh, John Oliver on uh, vaccines and it drove me nuts because of the anti-vaccine people. I am universally pro-vaccine and I just have little tolerance for the anti-vax people. Although I understand that some people are very skeptical of uh, the medical profession due to the poor history with African-American people and others. But it just, it drives me nuts. We can't universally agree that a vaccine is a good thing when 22% of Americans think I'm not getting it. Well, you're going to die or somebody you care about is going to die as a result of you not getting the vaccine. So we can't even come together to that. I can't even think of one thing that we could universally come together and truly all celebrate. Puppies? No, not puppies, because they're the wrong kind and they're miserable. <laughs> we covered that last week. <laughs>
0: might be right. I you're right and and I guess you could just say in times in the past people would just throw the parade and celebrate something and the other side just didn't have an organized response to to kind of just rain on the parade, I guess.
1: Or they didn't have the power. I mean, when the US was celebrating this or that in the 1950s and yet still implementing segregation, the people that were segregated didn't have the power to rise up or the platform to rise up and say hey, this is wrong. Don't you realize that this is happening? In that way, we have a much more democratic social media, more democratic media where everybody has a voice. And that is good. But at the same time, it makes for a few clear victories, which you're right. We should be amazed that this RNA vaccines have been come together so quickly, been implemented quickly, that numbers are falling that it looks like our life will be normal-ish in the, this summer and perhaps even normal next school year. It's incredible, but it's hard to have a universal declaration because everybody has a voice and perhaps that's good.
0: Maybe before a Lions game, we could just have a standing ovation for ourselves?
1: Before a Lions game, you should just come out and all boo. The Lions are terrible and always <laughs> will. I can't imagine what it would be like to watch one Lions game, much less every Lions game.
0: Well, here's a question for you. Think about your boy, Elon Musk or Bezos, who I'm sure are obsessed with living forever. And let's say one of them makes it to 150. Do you think there's more people excited for them that we got somebody to 150? Or do you think the media attention is at least 50% negative as they bring up the fact that they had sort of special consultants and, and had the money to afford this sort of thing. Do you think actually more negative press comes from it as people are like, look, this is bad if we do this on, on a mass scale?
1: Probably. I mean, you give Elon another 70, 80 years, he's going to say something really terrible and throw people off or the morals were changed so much that he is eventually something he'll think in hindsight was bad. In addition, whatever he's doing to live that long will probably be looked upon badly if it's killing 10 naked mole rats a day to inject their blood or whatever it is he's doing. It, it just, I just can't see it plays out real well. Also, I mean, aren't you tired of everything? I mean, I get burned out and tired of things here and I'm 44. I can't imagine being 144 and say like, oh, same old pro- same old stuff, oh, this BS same old lions <laughs> exactly what if you're a lions fan for 150 years oh my god the kind of sadness and just oh i couldn't imagine couldn't imagine
0: it's funny you mentioned the naked mole rats because they have a really good longevity because they're living down they don't have a ton of uh predators underneath the uh, earth where they're living they talk about some jellyfish that are able just to sort of live possibly forever, because they can just keep dividing themselves and keep living off of like new cells that generate. And therefore, maybe there's hope there. They've talked about how there's possibly some microbes down in the bottom of the ocean that have maybe been alive for hundreds of millions of years because of just how simple they are. Um, There are tree systems that are connected by roots that have been standing for 14,000 years, they think. So there seems to be stuff to study, stuff to figure out. And I do wonder, at some point, somebody will probably crack this, right? We know that science is good, and there's always some ambitious person that wants to solve it. If anything, I wanted to ask you, what do you think is a bigger concern? The idea of CRISPR designer babies, where we can just sort of pick what they're going to look like, what they're going to have in terms of their attributes, or the people that are working on this longevity, extreme ageism research? That's a tough one.
1: By the way, I did mention the naked roll rat intentionally. I, I don't know. These designer dogs are, are are an issue we discussed last week. Designer babies makes me a little bit more disturbed. I, I don't know. I just can't imagine. I think the, the designer babies is more concerning to me because I'm not sure how that will really turn out. And the goals of I'm already bothered by the fact that parents are bound to determine that their child will be this thing or that thing and putting all their time and energy into their kid to do this And the, I can't imagine if they can design them like, no, 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 you're a baseball player, but I'm a dancer. No, no, you're a baseball player. We designed you to have really long forearms so you can chuck a ball really fast.
0: And that just, that seems like a train wreck. Designer babies to me seems inevitable. I just don't think you're going to be able to. put a fence around. I just don't, I I think somebody in some country will be like a CRISPR babies are allowed here. And that's just the place you'll go. If, if other places are banning it, the old age thing to me, again, I, it just seems like from a financial, from an overpopulation, from an environmental, from just again, a changing of values and attitude among the generations, that one to me seems like it might bring bigger problems than we can see. Yeah, but there'll be old, slow-moving problems. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I wanted to ask you just sort of one final question, and I wanted to kind of go science fiction on you for a minute. There was a book I read last year called *Fall or Dodge in Hell* by Neil Stevenson. In the book, he sort of imagines and takes all the latest sort of theories on what would you do if you could put a human into a computer. Like, how might that work? The idea is like that, basically like brain imaging and 3D scanning gets so good that you would just take an image of all of the connections that are in a human's brain. And then you would just remap them into a computer, essentially, so that you have exactly what that person was. And then somehow you find a way to upload that into a computer. And could you possibly keep somebody's soul alive on a server, if you know what I'm saying? And it's sort of an interesting book where it just sort of explores the idea of if it's possible. And in the book, it does become possible. But then it kind of brings up some of the other issues. And like one of them was the amount of energy that it would take to keep somebody alive on a server would be tremendous. Much like we're seeing with Bitcoin right now, where you know whole nations are, are basically, uh, their, their energy output is is being now calculated with Bitcoin production. The other thing they brought up though is, are you ever allowed to turn the server off Or does that become sort of like murder in a way? If you know that there's kind of, I guess, a living soul inside a server, are you allowed to do that? And if it's viable technology, do you have to allow everybody to do it? Because that's a way to extend life to eternity, I guess. Any thoughts about that? I just thought it was interesting questions that hopefully I'm never going to be around to see, but I just thought they were interesting.
1: So sometimes you're away from home for a day or two, right? Yes, Do you call your wife and talk to her? Yes. Do you feel the same connection as if you're in the room with her? No. Exactly. Can you imagine being on a server? uh, It seems the most undesirable thing in the world to me. And I can't imagine it's something that people would want. It reminds me of the end of the Metallica video one, where there's the guy with no eyes and ears and he's doing SOS, please kill me. And he's just done because he can't really interact with the world doesn't sound desirable doesn't sound i mean it's an interesting thought exercise but i think it's one reality that would be absolutely miserable
0: but what if you and your wife could live in the server together
1: uh my wife doesn't like computers that much i think she'd be rather <laughs> done she'd be like no no that's it if i can't go for a walk or run or uh, be outside i'm done she doesn't like the desert i don't think she'd like ones and zeros all over the place
0: well in in, in theory potentially all of those things can be you know, booted up and stuff like that, if you will. And the idea is that maybe there could theoretically be life forever somewhere else, just maybe not physically on the earth. Obviously, I think we're a long, long way from it. And you're right. At some point, is there just a point where you say, no, I just want to be out? Well, you're not allowed to opt out. And what you're talking about is more of a
1: religious notion than anything else. Maybe you need to seek solace at a place of faith, as that is the place that'll take you to forever and ever and ever. And what is that place like? That's a pretty existential question. I don't think our answer is ones and zeros. It might be
0: a book written by some old person. I think we need our friend Russ to uh, weigh in on this one. He's a very wise man. He is. Well, Don, it's been a pleasure talking with this week. I do want to give a shout out to my daughter, Kira. She turned nine this week. And as I was preparing for us to kind of have this conversation, I just kept thinking, does she have 141 more years to go? (laughs) <laughs> is she the one? Uh, perhaps she is. She has low blood pressure genetically. We, we can only hope so. That's for sure. Uh, uh, although hopefully, you know, she won't have her dad's like horrific posture and stuff like that. <laughs> uh, and I do want to give a shout out to my wife. We had a birthday party yesterday and my daughter wanted to do tie dye. And my wife organized a tie dye party for eight girls And somehow nobody got dye in their eyes. It was a lot of chaos. Each kid made three shirts. And I just thought the organization of it was pretty impressive, given that it's hard to organize a bunch of nine-year-olds to uh, not put dye in their eyes. And those shirts will last for 150 years. (laughs) They might. They will be in the landfill somewhere, I bet you, at some point. (laughs) Well, Don, it's been a pleasure talking with you. I look forward to talking with you next week. All right, Zach. Bye-bye. Take care.